0: And do you know what's funny about my work is that I say to people, my clients, if I want to put them that way, I don't meet them. I don't meet the little girls. I only maybe hear their names. I hear their age. And I hear that they're at risk. And I go to work for them. I don't meet them. I will never meet them. And I don't need to. I just know that they are tucked away in beds. They are able to play And they are able to live a quality life because I choose to show up every single day. So what may have been to me just one more day that I was out there doing my work, doing what I believe in, meant that there are two precious babies in Tasmania who are safe now.
1: Life gives you two choices when it throws everything at you. You can let it swallow you whole or you take those lemons. And as the old saying goes, you turn it into sweet, delicious lemonade. And that's exactly what this podcast is all about. Welcome to Lemonade. I'm your host, Elizabeth O'Neill, and I'll be sharing the incredible stories from inspiring people who've turned the hardest times in their life, their lemons, into lemonade. Because let's be real, we all want to know how they did it, the lessons they learnt, and what life is like sipping the Nietzschello on the other side. Let's get juicing. Khadija Blah is one of the most phenomenal people I've ever had the pleasure of speaking to. Forced to flee Sierra Leone when war broke out and her father was killed, she then spent her childhood as a refugee in Gambia when her family was accepted to resettle in Adelaide. As she was getting used to her new life here in Australia, she was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Then one day while reading a pamphlet about female genital mutilation, the memories came flooding back. And suddenly she remembered she too was a victim, cut with a rusty knife in a hut when she was just nine years old. Khadija is now a fearless, anti-FGM campaigner, working tirelessly to educate doctors, police and the community about the practice. She also co-founded the Desert Flower Centre, the first of its kind in the Asia-Pacific region, specialising in providing medical care and reconstructive surgery for women impacted by FGM. She also runs a cultural consultancy agency, working with huge companies and brands across the country to implement policy on domestic and family violence, Child Protection, Racism, Human Rights, Refugees and Cultural Diversity. Khadija's TEDx talk on her experience has had close to 2 million views. She's also won a bunch of awards for her tireless work and somehow she also finds the time to be a single mum to her 5-year-old son. Now this is part 2 of our chat, so if you haven't listened to part 1, listen to that first as it sets up Khadija's childhood. In this discussion, we chat about the different forms of FGM in Australia – Feminism, what propels her to keep going, the impact her work has had preventing other girls from being cut right here in Australia, the Desert Flower Centre, being told she was infertile, then falling pregnant with her son, single motherhood, working with children, and her powerful message to listeners who've experienced adversity. We'll pick up where we left off from last week's chat. I remember, I recalled you saying somewhere too that when you were cut, the woman who did it with a rusty knife threw your clitoris against the wall like it was just the most disgusting thing she'd ever seen and you were just nine and that really struck a chord with me and I wanted to include that too. This discovery, what you then found out sparks this, as you mentioned then, this desire to want to raise awareness about FGM and make sure that no one... No other woman or girl is subjected to this as well. How did you get started on this mission from there?
0: Well, you know, anger is powerful. Anger is a powerful emotion. And anger is a natural emotion. I, I hate when people act like anger on its own is actually a problem. It's a very valid emotion like any other emotion. It's what we do with it. It's actually what becomes the question, how we channel it. Because just feeling anger it's not a crime when you try to hurt people because you're angry, that's a problem. But I decided that day that this is over, but this is also now my responsibility. When we know better, we must do better. My mom didn't know better. She did it. I know better because I now know better. Now I'm telling her to know better as well. And I wanted everyone to allow me to know better. But I knew I had to channel those feelings because, oh God, they were suffocating. Let me tell you. And one of the things I had to deal with in therapy was, of course, that trauma, the FGM trauma. The pain, the anger, the distrust I felt for my mom, the anger I felt towards her, the anger I felt towards uh, the this, this system that said this was necessary. The, 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 the pain I felt within my own body as in having been subjected to, the, to, to, to myself to this, being subjected to this. That had to go somewhere. <laughs> you just can't walk around with all of those feelings. And I do always say to people, you know, it's not what, what happens to us we can't control, but what we do with what has happened to us we can control. I believe in that for sure. So this was my way of going. I may not have been able to control that my mom subjected this to me, that I couldn't protect little Khadija. But there were other little Khadijahs out there in the world. I can and can make it my work, my life work, to protect them, to be, to, to be that person who hears their cry, who responds to that cry, who takes that stand. And it, it was necessary that it starts in my home. Too often we want to go out to the world and fight. The place you have the most influence, funny enough, is your family. I, I would never downplay that. Everyone usually wants to jump and go be Superman out there. Your home, your family is the way you have the most influence. Funny enough, it is. Mm. So starting in my own home, making that declaration to my mom and later on my auntie, then my community saying to them, you're all being put on standby. I'm watching. I'm listening. This stops. So I want you to know, I'm telling you, this stops now.
1: What was their response to that? Were they, or oh, were they well, a
0: bit shocked? I, I, <laughs> <laughs> Look, my, everyone who knew me knew that while I was a very quiet, and people find this funny, introverted child, I really was. I know it's, it's, like a, it, it's confusing. It makes no sense that I would ever have ever been quiet. I was. I was shy. I was quiet. I was shy. I was trying to be a good African girl. And, but everyone knew there was a sass in there that came out. There was a look in my face that always told people. She, it might be respectful and smiling, but she's telling me to fuck off in her head right now. That was me, okay? Um, and I already had been doing some volunteering, so people knew I took stance on certain things. Yeah. When though I made this call, I was coming against a systematic thing. It wasn't easy. There was ageism because I was young. I started my activism at the age of 13. People understand. Like I started young. There was ageism from the perspective I was a little girl, little kid. Who the hell are you? I was a girl. Sexism. Who is this girl? you better go cook and learn to clean the house and and one day hopefully there'll be a man to put up with you. (laughs) Instead of standing here trying to tell us we're going to stop cutting girls, we have to respect women and girls, children have rights. Fuck off, is Mm. what I got. Then there was, this is part of our identity. This is part of our culture. You are telling us to not be who we are. You are telling us something's wrong with our culture. You are attacking us, essentially, Mm -hmm. how that was internalized. And I said, A, A, I'm not attacking your culture. I am African, so uh, let's, let, let's not get twisted. We're all Africans here. B, actually, it's not our culture. Culture, we, we control our culture. This is actually just misogyny. That's what the fuck this is. So no, no, no. We control our culture. We control that we like food, music. What, what, what is culture? It's constantly changing and evolving. So while this may have been acceptable at one point, we can change it and say it's unacceptable. So no. And this is child abuse. It's child abuse full stop, no matter whether the child is all the way in Gambia or she's in Australia, being forced to have labiaplasty at the age of 13 because her mom thinks her labia is just a bit too big. Or the, the woman who, about to, who just gave birth to her baby and the doctor winks at her husband, go I'm going to give her extra stitches, mate, so she's tighter for you fuck that or the girl in America who likes another girl the mom and parents decide that oh we can't have a lesbian in the family we're going to cut off her clitoris that will make her not like girls i am sorry it's child abuse and all that's 20.
1: happened hasn't it although everything that, you just said then is all examples it's that all you know
0: of. yeah when we can talk about that so look they did not accept it very well but i did give i give no fucks about that <laughs> when you decide you're going to fight a fight you have to be prepared that you will get attacked and pushed back. If, you, if you're not prepared for that, you're already going to it the wrong way. Not, everyone's not gonna bow down to you and celebrate you and all of a sudden come around to your way of thinking. I'm changing a century, not century, decades old practice. This has been going on since Egyptian, the mummies. That's how long FGM has been in the world. And like I said, it's generational. So it wasn't, I was just about to go, oh, let's switch from one form of oil that we cook with To another oil, stop using canola oil (laughs) and start using (laughs) olive oil. That wasn't this, okay? You'll be fine. That was (laughs) not the conversation. Let's not get it twisted. I was about to change lives. I am saying to them what you have always done and it's so normalized for you. I'm going to make it stop. But my message wasn't just to them. It was to every other little girl in that community that's saying to them, I stand for you. I validate and support your body autonomy. You are deserving of protection. You're deserving of a quality of life that would be robbed if you were subjected to this. You have somebody in your corner. Full stop. Me, I'll be in your corner. And this wasn't just about FGMs, about other forms of child abuse and domestic violence. I've always been a feminist. I've always been a black feminist. This was just the first, this was just the beginning of what people would come to call Tornado Khadija. Oh my God, here she comes. Okay? Here she comes. <laughs> and then, then I'm like, it so it <laughs> oh tornado khadija oh trust me oh iron lady sometimes i'm fondly called iron lady but it's like okay whatever you call me i don't Oh, i'm a i'm proud nasty angry woman I, i'm proud of all of that it does not bug me whatsoever but i think the change had to come from my family then it had to be in my community then i had to take it wider than that because fgm is happening in australia because people might wonder why are we talking about this isn't yeah. this happening somewhere across the world this happened in gambia to khadija i'm sorry to dispel that myth for you. FGM is happening in Australia and has been happening in Australia. Okay? And it did not come to Australia through migration. I want to dispel that. If you notice some of those examples were not very African examples now were they? That was very intentional on my part. So in the 80s, FGM was called clitronomy and it was performed on white women because it was deemed that they were being too hysterical. What I call PMS, I think women were just having their bloody period, <laughs> just needed a bit of chocolate, <laughs> I'm just saying. But PMS and, and those emotions of they were hysterical, or the husband just thought the wife was just too much, she asked too much questions, she didn't know her place. Clitonomy was advised for those wives. They were taken to hospital, and the clitoris were, were reduced or cut off to ensure that they were subdued and they were calmer funny enough that would be the same time that the dildo was created the vibrator because then the other part to this was if they just had orgasms and climax may actually be a way to subdue them once again and calm them down but that's a whole different conversation when I talk about the orgasm gap we can get into that <laughs> <laughs> right? but it was done and it was given this fancy name clitronomy but it is just FGM in disguise but when it's white women, it's clitronomy that's mm, what was done mm-hmm. to them and as time went on we, we saw that then generations of white women who are now remembering being, you know, they, when they were found to be touching themselves, masturbating, their parents decided that that was ungodly and unnecessary and that they were heathens and, and, and they were bad little girls. They were taken to clinics where the clitoris were cut off. When little girls showed a, 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 a desire for another g- girl or woman and, and shown to be liking somebody of the same sex, FGM was once again done to them to cure lesbianism, i.e. pretty much homophobia was what mm-hmm. we were saying. Mm-hmm. We are now seeing this rise of labiaplasty being thrown in for girls under the age of 18. Don't get it twisted. I don't, what an adult woman chooses to do with her body that's her autonomy. She can make choices. What we do to little girls who are still developing and growing, now that is problematic. So last year, I read an article where an angular woman, a white woman, decided that her, little, her daughter was like the age of 13. Her labia, her lips were just a bit too long. A, I want to know why she was so close to her daughter's genitals, first and foremost. You, like How do you get that close to even observe that? B, we know genitals, female genitalia, comes in all forms and shapes, sizes. Long, tall, fluffy, juicy. It, 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 it's, it's diverse and beautiful and perfect just the way it is. But her mother decided that it was just too uneven. She took her to a plastic surgeon and subjected that 13-year-old who's still growing to labiaplasty. That is FGM. And people are going, oh, it's not the same Khadija. It's not in an African village. It's not in a heart, Khadija. We're not like those barbaric women. We're not, no. I'm sorry to tell you, boo boo, that's not the case. It is FGM. Racism is what makes you think that it has to happen in a heart that's the black woman. That it cannot be the blonde, blue eyed woman. It cannot be Mm -hmm. the blonde, blue eyed little girl who's at risk of this. That's what racism does. That's not actually how the definition of FGM never said one group of people. It said any altering or changing of the female genitalia for non medical reason or cultural. Yeah. That little girl, she was chaffing, maybe, let's say it was hurting because it was uneven. Let's say it hurt and it was giving her discomfort. That would be perfectly valid if a doctor suggested maybe that something needed to be done. That was not the case. It was medically unnecessary. She, there was nothing wrong with her. There was no health consequences of the unevenness. It was not impacting her life in any way. It was her mother's decision that she did not look A certain way. Hmm. We see an increase of this because of pornography, people Hmm. watching porn and seeing labies and and, and, and labias and vulvas that are all tucked in and look very cosmetically altered. And now there's this pressure that that's how we need to look. We don't get enough diverse information to showcase that the vulva looks such diverse diversity in the way women look down there, the way our our private parts, people don't even know the difference between the vulva and the vagina, let alone even the right names, we call it our little bits, our lady parts, even using the right language, it's considered shameful and taboo. There is an obsession with altering the female genitalia, and we're seeing girls 13, 14, 15 requesting the surgery, or partners telling them, or boyfriend going oh, I, I don't like that bit. It just looks like this because I've watched porn and it doesn't. I don't. I'm comparing you now to that. Or my ex girlfriend looked this way. These are dangerous times, ladies. We're fighting battles on different fronts, but the, our fight as women and girls and for equality should never forget the most marginalised of us. Our little girls are very vulnerable to messages and, and 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 you know social media has opened up a whole new platform. But another form of FGM I want to draw our audience to, which they may not consider FGM, and it's one that I have even heard that white women sit around sometimes they laugh about. It's called the husband stitch. Yeah, the I hadn't heard has been, of this
1: until you brought it up. Yeah.
0: It feels like I am now blowing up a lead on something that most people, they, everyone keeps saying, get first brought what is up, I've yeah. never heard of it. The husband stitch has been happening for a long time. So what it is is that a woman goes to give birth. And usually to vaginal birth. And I won't call it natural. All birth is natural. And whatever is necessary for a woman to bring a child into the world safely is what needs to be done. So that's a vaginal birth. So when you have a vaginal birth, you have tearing sometimes that happens. And then you have to be sewn up in that tearing. That's just normal. But what's happening with the husband's stitch is that a doctor, usually a male doctor, is deciding that you need extra stitches than what's necessary. This is not necessary. They've already done what was normal. Extra stitches to tighten you up for your husband, not for you or for your partner, not for you. You don't need these extra stitches. You just brought a human into the damn world. Bringing that human to the world has caused tearing that has already been sewn up, so you're okay. They're the extra unnecessary stitches without your consent to make sure that you are tight for your partner, because all about the misogyny, once again, so he will feel pleasure. So his life will not be changed by you bringing this child into the world. I spoke to a woman a couple of weeks ago, a white Australian woman. She said to me, I brought up the husband's stitch. She said to me, when she was having her baby, she was lying there. The husband, the baby had come out. They've already taken care of, you know, the medical intervention she needed the male doctor looked at her husband gave him a wink and said i'm going to add some extra stitches for you mate what two men talking to each other over a woman about her what they're going to do to her vagina to each other she's lying there but she's lying there.
1: and this is someone you spoke to
0: this is someone i spoke to we were talking about work Yeah. And then we got into FGM. And then I I was trying to tell her that, you know, there are many forms of FGM that white Anglo communities practice and that's not considered FGM because of the racial way people have looked at the definition, the stigma and the bias people have applied to FGM that makes them think it's just the African women, the Middle Eastern women, Asian women. It's not us. No, 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 that's not us. No. It's like, actually, that's not true whatsoever. FGM has always happened in the West as well. FGM is such a global phenomenon that it happens in every continent except Antarctica. So essentially, the penguins are feminists. The penguins (laughs) love the clitoris. The penguins (laughs) want orgasms. The penguins are pro-feminist. The penguins are winning in life. The the rest of us just suck. 100%. (laughs) So the husband's stitch is FGM. The husband's stitch, when a, without a woman's consent, adding those extra stitches is FGM. Remember what I talked about type 3 FGM, the sewing up? Do you see how the, the, the similarities? Because those extra stitches will be considered you sewing up a woman. Yeah. You're trying to tighten her vagina to make it tinier. That's pain for her during penetration. That is discomfort for the pleasure of a man. The misogyny. So ladies, if when you thought we were going to do this interview, talk about FGM, and it would be, we're going to talk about how we save the black babies and how we save the black women and how we save the Middle Eastern oppressed women. I'm sorry to disappoint you. I know when we're like in social isolation, we need some hope and light right now. And I'll get to that with the orgasm gap and how I can give you love and light. But for now, what I want you to now realize is that FGM is a result of a patriarchal society. It's a result of misogyny. And it's part of the violence against women, sp- family and spectrum. And what we know is that by virtue of being born girls and women, we are vulnerable and we are targeted. FGM only happens because you're a girl, because you're deemed that your body doesn't belong to you. It's communal property that needs to be protected, that your purity, virginity, your pleasure, they are all not worthy because you're a girl. You're only good for one thing. You you should be to have babies. Pleasure should not be a right. And that the female sexuality is such a threat to the patriarchal society. We see this conversation about, oh, what was she wearing? She's wearing a bikini, the slut-shaming, the victim. We see, these are all part of that spectrum. They're not in isolation whatsoever. Oh, she needs to cover up her leg. We see even little girls. Oh, don't cross, don't sit like that. Sit this particular way. lest you know, a pedophile is watching and listening mm. and somehow, but boys can sit any way they want and boys can, can whack all they like. Oh, oh, it's healthy. A girl tries to understand her body. Oh, that's the signs of a slut. That's the sign of mm. someone's gonna be a deviant one day. Hell no. It starts very early, these messages. So if you thought FGM was about those women somewhere else, those other women who are not empowered, those other women who are, don't know their, their, their place, those other women who need saving, then you're letting the sisterhood down because mm-hmm. that's actually not what this is about. We are all, as women, all over the world, from the Middle Eastern woman who's fighting to either wear the hijab or not wear it, because that should be her choice, to the girl here who wants to wear her bikini, to the woman who wants to walk down the road in her short skirt and go, I have a right to wear my short skirt. It doesn't mean I'm asking to be raped. It doesn't mean I'm asking to be harassed. To the fight for gen- the gen- to close down the gender pay gap, to the fight to have equality in our parliament. We're all fighting the same evil the patriarchy, yeah. whether you're in Latin America, you're in Asia, you're in Africa, you're in Australia, it, the battle is the same. The way it looks is what's different, but the fight, the ultimate enemy is the same. And I think sometimes we lose track of that.
1: Back to your incredible advocacy work and the incredible work yes. you're doing here. Are there any occasions that stick out in your mind where the talks you've done, because you do all these talks and you've got your cultural consultancy firm where you go into these big companies and you help them implement and roll out some uh, more kind of, and you're probably going to word this much better than I do, but help them, I guess, bridge any gaps that might exist between um, culture or sex or anything like that. <laughs> I know you're going to word it so much better than I do. And um, and you go and you do all this. Has there ever been examples that stick out in your mind where you've then heard back from people that have said, I was able to prevent being cut because of what you told me?
0: Oh, definitely. Wow. Definitely. Okay. And those are the times that gets me going when I have the days where things are hard. Yeah. I have days where, I'm not successful in, 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 in protecting a girl. It's not always successful. But I have couple, two stories probably that really, started, actually not two, but I'll give two, just in the interest of this. A um, couple of years ago, once I had realized what had happened to me and I started if my fight and my activism, I started within my community and wanting to do some um, education with young girls around FGM and in general, just domestic and family violence and, and, and empowerment. Because so I've always been passionate about that. So I did a couple of uh, community sessions, separate from their parents, just with the younger girls, educating them about owning up their voice, speaking up, um, saying no, being assertive, um, owning their story and their experiences and talking about violence and the forms that may take. I talked to them about FGM and I remember the girls saying to me, well, we're safe now though, we they do in Australia? And I said, it doesn't change anything. Your parents may still feel like this is something that's necessary to happen to you at some point. What I want you to know and what I want to empower you with is the information and knowledge in what you do when that day comes, when it comes. Anyway, I did lots of these sessions. I can't keep track of them. But probably three or four years ago, I went to a school, um, actually a college because it was an adult school, um, to give a talk on feminism. And I was doing this talk, I of course talk about the fight against FGM as a form of gender-based violence and as part of the Me Too movement that FGM is a Me Too issue as well um, and how we can tackle it. And one of the younger girls got up and she said, oh my God, I know you Khadija, and we met a couple of years ago and you saved my life. And at this point I'm thinking, how do I save somebody's life? That's <laughs> <And laughs> somebody a Something for them, and you can't remember, and you're just like, hmm, I don't remember this. But anyway, she said, save my life. And I'm thinking, those are strong words. And she said, we met a couple of years ago in a session you were doing around FGM. And you were talking to us young girls around how this is something that we may experience one day. We were at risk of this. She said, we didn't take it seriously. Honestly, I didn't take it seriously. I just thought, no, no, no. You're just overreacting. This is not going to happen to us. Mm -hmm. In Australia, We're, we're in Australia. It's not going to happen to us. We're not back home anymore. And she said, so I thought I forgot about it. She said, years later though, what she remembered from that session had been that I said to them, what were the key words to watch out for? I said, if your parents came come.'" come home one day and say to you, we're going to take a special trip and you're going to become a woman. We're going on a special holiday and something special is going to happen. There's going to be a special celebration. You're going to become a woman. Those, those words, if you hear them, most likely it's either FGM or false child marriage might be about to happen mm. to you. I want you to immediately call for help. Such a, they laughed it off and thought, I'm just being hysterical. Everyone usually thinks I'm hysterical. Then I'm proving to be right. So she said she was just home, maybe five, six, eight weeks after the sessions were done. Her mom came home and said to her, oh, we're going back home. We're going to go on for a special holiday. You're going to become a woman. We're going to celebrate you. You're going to love it. She said, she thought, hold on. Where have I heard these words before? She was trying to rack up, where have I heard this before? And then he came to her. Oh my God, fucking, this Khadija told me about it. Oh my God. Oh, oh my God. Wow. I, I, oh my God. I know what's going to happen. She went to her dad. She said, dad, you need to listen to me. Mom just said we're going on a holiday. I think she's planning to have me be subjected to FGM. And dad's like, what's FGM? You know, you know, female circumcision or female cutting, which is usually the common terminology in that part of the world. She said, I think that's what she's planning to do. She just told me that I'm going to become a woman. Why would I become a woman on a holiday? That makes no sense whatsoever. The dad took it very seriously. He listened and he said, okay, okay, I know what to do. They went on the holiday. See, in my, I would have preferred they didn't go on the holiday. First mm. and foremost, but they did. They went on the holiday. Did that ensure that she wasn't left alone with the mom or the mom's family? Because we've heard of kids going on holiday and then somebody in the family kidnaps them. So the mom goes, somebody, one of the parents goes to the market. By the time they come back, the child has been mutilated. It's That's been how done. quickly it, it has been done. People yeah. don't need consent. They're not asking anyone. It could be an auntie, it could be a cousin, it could be anyone feeling obliged that they're going to get this done. So he, he said he kept her safe, and I'm happy to tell you. She graduated from university. She is happy. She is empowered. She runs her own small business. Her genitals are intact. She owns her sexuality. When we talk, God, I I just feel like a proud mommy. She's healthy and she's safe. And she was also not able to protect her little sister. That one doesn't make me cry as much as this next one, which really makes me cry. So a couple of years ago, I went all the way to Tasmania. I actually have been to Tasmania a couple of times. And Tasmania is a very funny place, I find, that it has quite a large, you know, very multicultural population, mind you. Um, And I was invited to do numerous, um, I think two or three workshops or uh, speeches on FGM. And this particular one that I did was a room full of survivors from different communities. And I remember, because when I'm in that setting and when I'm talking to survivor, it's a different conversation from when I'm talking to a doctor or I'm talking to a social worker. You, you have to tell her your, make your message depending on the audience. This woman in this room, we were victims like myself and survivors, but they were potential perpetrators. It's a very interesting wow. thing, you know, powerful. Yeah. So I wanted to obviously validate first and foremost, their experience and there were tears. Validating the experience as survivors of this practice, an act that's been done to them as children. Validate and join the dots for them in the consequences of that act. Most of these women for the first time in their life didn't know that what they had been subjected to at the age of five or six or even 13 was what caused heavy period, painful period, infertility, all these other challenges they they had later. They thought it was because they were evil or bad women or they were just not strong. Because of low health literacy and low literacy, there, there wasn't any connection made between what was happening at a younger age and later on in life, the consequences. It's also why FGM continues because people don't actually understand that this act they do, the consequences later on, the dots are not joined for people. So I find that that's actually one of the most powerful things I can do for those communities, joining the dots for them. So there are tears in this room, women going, oh my God, my periods are very painful, because I explained to them that when I have my period, and this was my younger years, now it's much better. I used to be admitted at the emergency every month. So you talk about PMS, when people are like, oh, I got PMS, I just need a bit of chocolate. For a whole week, I'm on the floor, crawling, in pain. All the pain medication you can get from, the, from the, uh, the pharmacist doesn't work. I can't go to school. I can't go to uni. I can't even walk to the bathroom. I can't crawl to the bathroom. And then I'll have to call the ambulance at some point because the pain is so unbearable. But I want somebody to kill me and put me out of my misery. Mm. We get to the uh, emergency. They put me on morphine drips. That's the level of pain I am in. I'm joining the dots for these ladies. And they go, I've always had that period. I just thought I was weak. I just thought that I was abnormal. And then another lady's like, oh, I have infertility. I'm like, I was diagnosed with infertility and I was still at uni. Like I wasn't even sexually active yet when I was diagnosed. I wouldn't have a baby. I joined the dots and there's tears, there's grieving, there's pain. And then I get to the part where I do a call of action to these ladies. I validated you. We know what this act that was done to us, does to us. We know the pain and the cost. We know that we did not have a choice. But you know what I know? We now have a choice in what we do for our daughters and for the girls in our families, our community. So I want you to protect them. I want you to, you to be to them what nobody was for you. So I left, came back home, mind my business. As usual, keep working away. You work away, you work away. <laughs> I went to a conference in Melbourne, FGM1. Not just standing there trying to decide that there's only sandwich, and I hate sandwiches and waste the bloody food. I this st- may <laughs> work I hate sandwiches. I think they're racist. Well, that's a whole different podcast. I do not understand them. When you have so many other things to eat, why would you give somebody a sandwich? So I'm standing there grumbling as usual, ready to go off on some, whoever they cater about the racism of the sandwiches. This man comes up to me and says like, are you Khadija? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'm Khadija. He said, I have a message for you. Why do people say the most random things to me? How can you have a message for me? I don't know you. <laughs> and he said, I have a lady with her daughters in a domestic violence shelter in Tasmania. She said, if I ever see you to tell you you saved her her life and her daughter's life. I said, in Tasmania, why is she in a shelter? He said, she said she had gone to this thing where you spoke about FGM and you talked about the need to protect her daughters, that she could not have protected herself, but she could protect her daughters. Her husband at some point decided and started putting pressure on her to have FGM done to the two girls. She said she heard you. She heard you loudly in her voice, in, your, in her head, telling her, You must protect your daughters. You must keep them safe. This is your chance. So she left. She fled to a DV shelter to say, My daughters are at risk of FGM. I need you to look after us. And you have to remember, this is remarkable. DV shelters are for what we traditionally call male violence against women. The FGM has never been included. Even I've done a lot of advocacy around saying to shelters, You must be willing to take this woman. You must be willing to take a mom who's coming to you and say, my daughter is at risk." so, ooh, I don't know, I may have advocated for that. That doesn't mean the DV shelter has been open, shelters or the sector has been open to this conversation. They haven't. But this man is telling me that that woman, that mom made the ultimate decision, one that I wish my mom had made and I, and I hope other mothers will make, to take her daughters there, to keep them safe. And do you know what's funny about my work is that I say to people, my clients, if I wanna put them that way, I don't meet them. I don't meet the little girls. I only maybe hear their names. I hear their age. And I hear that they're at risk. And I go to work for them. I don't meet them, I will never meet them. And I don't need to. I just know that they are tucked away in beds. They are able to play. And they are able to live a quality life because I choose to show up every single day. So what may have been to me just one more day that I was out there doing my work, doing what I believe in, meant that there are two precious babies in Tasmania who are safe now. So (laughs) it is an interesting line of work where you're literally, your work is dealing with your own trauma, (laughs) literally working the place of my own trauma. And I sacrifice my privacy. And I say this all the time when people go, I talk about my TED talk and I go, I am the bitch who stood on a stage with a TED talk that has now over what? 1 million, close to 2 million views and talked about what was between my fucking legs, okay? (laughs) (laughs) I am trying to date as a single woman out here. And people can quickly go Google, okay? (laughs) Fucking hell. They meet my genitals before they meet me. That is quite scary (laughs) thought, actually. But the reality is, I sacrificed my privacy, I, I guess I sacrificed my shame, <laughs> if I'm to put it that way, and you know, I put myself out there in such a vulnerable way, because they're precious, precious little girls, blonde blue eye, black, Asian, Middle Eastern, no race, no religion, they transcend all of that, who I believe deserve to live a life free of violence, who I believe, and this is my fight against the patriarch every day, I believe that they deserve to live a life that does not condemn them because of their gender. That's what this is. They're condemned because of their gender. By virtue of being born a girl, they're being told that they're not deserving of pleasure, they're not deserving of body autonomy, that they need to be subjected to this. We have babies. Research proved last year that we have babies as young as five months old in Australia, showing up to hospitals with injuries consistent with FGM. And for the mamas listening out there, anybody who has a baby, a five-month-old baby brings milk, you're trying to get them this sack of lamp to smile at you. You might be lucky if they're drunk on the milk. They smile, but usually it's the milk. That's why they're smiling. They poop and they they sleep, essentially. How is a five-month-old baby a threat to anyone? How is a five-month-old baby sexuality that doesn't even exist, a thing? Why? That's what we're talking about here. Five-month-old babies with injuries consistent with FGM. Childcare workers calling me, saying, when they're changing nappies, they're seeing things they should not be saying. One of my favorite, probably, or the favorite, I think, change has been last, not last year, maybe two years ago, one of the advocacies I did was when Victoria was doing their Royal Commission into Family and Domestic Violence. Mm -hmm. So for years, FGM was put in this little side box outside of the Family and Domestic Violence spectrum. Even though FGM is usually perpetrated by family members, so it is family violence. But because it wasn't being perpetrated, it's not um, male violence. It wasn't seen as male violence against women, so how domestic violence would happen. It was not considered and put in that box. It was always put in the side box. But for the first time, when the Royal Commission to Family Voucher in Victoria happened, FGM was included. Yeah. It was included, and my recommendations were put in, and they're there now, because every time, every couple of months I go look at it and I read it, and I smile to myself. I'm proud of that. But I think one of probably my favorite stories was, last, since I had my son... I became quite a regular at the medical conferences across Australia. Future doctors love me and I love talking to them because doctors literally have such a great role to play in the fight against FGM. Mm -hmm. So whether it's a survivor coming to seek medical treatment or a potential younger girl coming in for something, a mom who has a daughter, a doctor can have a conversation that could literally change lives. So I love going to this medical conferences with future doctors. And what I had, when, when Sammy was born, probably the second year, I spent a lot of time on, you know, just going to this medical conference. I was a like, mom, I'm tired, I'm sleepy, but really want to hammer in uh, the role of doctors. And every time I've walked away from those conferences, I've come back with emails and messages from future doctors saying, I have literally changed the way they practice medicine. Wow. I go into my talks. They are now able to provide appropriate care For survivors. I spent six years of my life in Australia with nobody, no doctor being able to tell me why my periods were so painful. Not being able to have the treatment I deserve to live a quality of life, being sent from one x-ray to one to another x-ray looking for something that could have been addressed if one of my doctors had just asked me, when you were little, were you cut? Because nobody asked me that question. They could not give me the treatment I deserve. So by training these doctors, I am ensuring that and not a sur- survivors in Australia, the 200,000 women and girls who have been caught in Australia, they get proper treatment. Mm-hmm. That the 11 girls who are at risk of FGM, if they were to sit in front of a GP that's come to one of my sessions, they will be afforded some level of protection. The social workers have come to my training, know how to screen for FGM, so when they call me to say, oh. I have a girl who has been in my class for months and all of a sudden her parents have just decided to take her on a holiday. I'm worried. I feel like I should flag that. Something, something you have said makes me think that I need to have something to be worried about. Or a girl has come from a trip on a holiday. She's constantly in the bathroom. I feel like there's something there. I'm doing a sexual health class or health class and I've decided in talking about genitalia, I will include the fact that some girls may not have a clitoris and some girls may be told that the clitoris need to go. I've had a girl come and talk to me after that class to say she believes her parents are planning on cutting her.
1: Wow,
0: I hear this—I mean—weekly. If you follow me on Instagram, you see that sometimes I actually put my TikTok uh, feedbacks that I get from people all over the world. This line of work, activism, is never easy, and I think sometimes people see the um, the flashy side when you get a magazine feature or when you you know you're all dolled up for for some award. But I. I am proud that I took something that was horrible and I will live, live it for the rest of my life. And I turned that into a life-saving mission to ensure that instead of it being that negative thing that had happened to me, the legacy now is what I do and the lives I change and the impact I make. That's now what it is about. So when I've talked to my mom and she's still angry and feels like I should not be talking about FGM, she hates my advocacy, it makes her feel guilty and look bad. I said to her, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about the voiceless, those who don't have the power, the precious little girl who nobody sees, nobody will hear. It's li- the little Khadija, little and fighting for little Khadija. Every single day I show up for the little Khadijas that I will never meet, will never know. And I don't need to. I know precious little Khadija who was in kindy when she was at risk of FGM. My intervention means that she is not at risk. She is safe and healthy and happy. There is power when we own our stories. There is power when we make a choice in changing the narrative and choosing to use all that anger or the pain into something positive. And I must say this though, I wouldn't be able to do the work I do if I hadn't done the healing of my trauma. I could not work in the middle of my trauma. My work is literally a trigger. It, it, like I'm u- utilizing my pain, re-traumatizing myself all the time, using my personal story, my pain to raise awareness, to reach people. I wouldn't be able to do that if I did not do the work that I needed to be done internally. That I don't do the work. I do the work every single day to look after me so I can do that. So I go back to that. You first before anything else. Mm. So it's powerful stuff. That's
1: incredible, incredible powerful stuff. Oh my gosh, I had goosebumps and tears all through that as well. You in an extension to you turning something so horrendous in your life into something positive and helping other people, you also co-founded the, the Desert Flower Centre Australia. Do you mind just telling yeah. us a little bit about that? That goes a lot in helping reconstruct yeah. women yeah. Who are affected by FGM.
0: <laughs> so I spent probably the first Um, 12-15 years of my life really focusing on FGM as a child abuse issue doing education, training, awareness, policy the little girl was the focus protecting her and then almost as a side thing was working with survivors as well but but that wasn't the major focus because the little girl was more vulnerable making sure she doesn't get cut needed the priority especially when Australia wasn't talking about FGM as a form of child abuse and we weren't doing any screening it took a lot of energy But I think the last five years, you know, I had done the work around the child abuse. I had raised awareness. I was featured in all these magazines. I had got the word there. My TED Talk had done the work. So I knew that in that front, I had made some leeway. But I remembered my sisters, though, who English is not the first language, the women who were still struggling to get care. But most of all, this gap around treatment for FGM. Then I heard of this clinic in, 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 um, in France and in Berlin who were doing reconstructive surgery around FGM. And hearing of women having to pay thousands of dollars to travel to go there to access this support, I thought, are you kidding me? That's unacceptable. I'm also looking at my own experience of accessing medical care and not getting proper care, um, going for pap smear and bleeding because they, they weren't using the right, uh, I usually call it speculum. it's not a cooking device. It's speculum. for the nurses, they're <laughs> like, that is not how you say who cares? You speak one language, calm down. <laughs> but speculum, basically, not using the guy's right speculum and, and women being turned away, even when they've gone to a GP to say, can you please uh, do an examination? I listened to this TED talk. I think I have had FGM, but my, nobody's telling me, my family, can you examine me? Doctor's going, I'm not examining you, refusing to actually do the examination. So with all these challenges, I thought once again, I need to do something about this. I'm one of those people who goes, there's a problem. Instead of going, who can fix it? I go, what's my role in fixing it? We always look for somebody else to be the solution. I think we need to start realizing we literally are the solutions to the challenges our families, our community, and our nation faces. I think if we started there, we would get so so further ahead in a lot of things. So I thought, okay, how? what do I do in this space? The first thing I needed to do was find a surgeon. I needed to find somebody who had the skill set and the gynecologist necessary to work in this space. Because what I envisaged was a center that would offer treatment for FGM from a gynecological perspective because most of the consequences of FGM are women health related periods, um, fibroids, infertility, sexual dysfunction. You you sort of wanted somebody with the expertise in women's health and which will make them very comfortable. Then you needed a trauma informed care. I need a trauma psychologist or team because FGM is trauma. Then I thought I also still would need some sort of support around peer support, survivors talking to other survivors, that sort of validation and care. But how do I do that and also do the child protection here? So everything needed to come under, the, under one banner. So for most people who have followed me over the years, they know I used to be the director, executive director of NOAA FGM Australia, which I ran and founded as well. So that was re- literally the child protection arm of my work. Now I'm talking about the medical center okay. arm of my work. And I didn't want to have two different titles and be two different people. I do, I, it's hard enough that I'm a single mom. I have all these other titles. I needed to bring my FGM work under on one home. So the Desert Flower Center was born from the book Desert Flower by Waris Dari, who is a FGM survivor who in the 80s, as a supermodel, talked about her experience of FGM. She went on to be a big model. There's even a movie called The Desert Flower uh, Movie, which came out last year. Mm-hmm. She then opened up the Desert Flower Center across Europe offering reconstructive surgery counseling and support for survivors but that's not good enough i can't have my woman traveling across the world we needed the desert flower center australia so i found me a surgeon gynecologist somehow <laughs> i was doing a training at china say banging on about fgm as usual i said i couldn't find any doctors in this space and the nurse said to me I know a doctor who, does F- who actually works with women who have had FGM. Like, no, you don't. I have done my search. I've looked everywhere. high and low. It's like, no, no. She just doesn't advertise it. Excuse me? I got her name and when I met with her. And I found that she has an interest in FGM. She's been supporting women who have had type 3 FGM. So opening up, when they have been sewn up, she has been defibrillating them, providing them support. I told her my vision. We came together and decided we could do something. So I'm happy to say since last year, the Desert Flower has unofficially opened. We've had up to 15 women already mm. come to our door. We've had white women come in who have had butchered labiaplasty wow. done to them. Yes, they've gone to have labiaplasty. They have been fucked completely up and they have been sent our way to rectify. We've had women come in and the validation and the... Uh, just the space to be able to give them back a sense of dignity and a sense of power back in taking control over their life. And it, it just easing some of the, 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 the pain they have, the, the suffering, and so they can have some resemblance of a quality of life has become, that has been my life work now since last year. And um, I'm proud of it. I am it's amazing. proud of that sisterhood and being able to support other women and have that space of women who been healed, whether it's to just creating um, the trauma counseling, just supporting them, whether it's just that healing from that perspective, owning their, their bodies again and not seeing their bodies as a place of trauma or you know just getting treatment so they can have less pain. Pain is a horrible condition. Pain, it, it is unbearable when people are in pain, just how that impacts every area of their lives, so I I I feel good. I sleep well at night because I feel I sleep well at night because once again I have just found a different way of going about fighting this fight, but from a healing perspective this time, yes. and ensuring that those two hundred thousand women who have been caught in Australia have somewhere to go where they're validated, they're supported, and they get treatment. And I should actually talk about the treatment that we offer. So we have laser, which helps cut down the scar tissue is able to allow lubrication in, in, in the vulva and the vagina to create, you know, less pain, to ensure they can feel more pleasure. They're able to um, even achieve orgasm, the big O. We should talk about orgasm after this because I am quite <laughs> a, a passionate about the orgasm gap. Um, we're able to ensure that, you know, we talk about fertility and, you know, I was somebody who was diagnosed with infertility. So my baby Sammy is such a miracle child yeah. that is here. And you know, um, so just just little things. They don't seem like much, but what that means is we have women who are able to go home, and for the first time in their life, they're pain free. For the first time in their life, they're able to get their groove back. Um, <laughs> for the first time in their life, they're like um, they're able to feel a sense of womanhood and healing and peace. And it's it's something. It's something in a world that's constantly cutting down women, constantly remi- making us feel inferior constantly you know making us feel like we need to take less space so yeah that that's been that's what i have been working really hard on and for me what right now my goal is to raise two hundred thousand dollars so i can continue that work so i can do more of it spread it more and and support more women because i don't want any of our women don't have to pay a penny not even five cents towards that care it's all free of charge because they deserve that um and there should be no price on On healing and fixing what's been taken away from them
1: absolutely you mentioned then too that um you have a son and you were told you're infertile and you would never be able to have a child and then you fell pregnant with your beautiful boy sammy yeah firstly how did it feel when you were told you were pregnant (laughs)
0: because that, that was a whole mess let me tell you okay I mean, when you're told you can't have something, and I'll say this. I was one of those people who wanted to be Mother Teresa. I thought we had enough children in the world, honestly. And I wanted to adopt. I wanted to build orphanages. I wanted to look after those babies. Um, I didn't sort of sit and dream of motherhood, you know, dream of babies. I have always believed that, you know, it's not blood that makes a mom, like, we can foster. I have always believed that. There is something powerful, though, when you're told you can't do something. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I was thought, you know, if I change my mind or when I want to, it was almost like a given. I will have a child if I want to have a child. But when I got told that I had fibroids and I had, you know, with the FGM that I will not be able to conceive and even if I try to conceive, it will be such a, a challenge. Something changed. I went, hold on. You're saying this is not my choice. Mm. You're saying that choice has been taken away from me. You are saying once again, my mom's decision now has this consequence. I mean, I've seen the other consequence, my periods, everything. Else. Now this. Are you kidding me? So it's like, well, this is not even a choice anymore. Like this, that it's been taken away from me, um, and I had to grieve that. I had to yeah. grieve. Um, the pain came back again. It's like that pain. I'm like, are you kidding me? This is the gift. This is why I keep saying it's the FGM is the gift that keeps giving. So just every time you think I'm like I've adjusted to my my normal, I've adjusted to whatever it gets something comes up. So I had to grieve this and it pained me for months and years. And then I had to accept it for what it is. So I didn't have a lot of high hopes that I would have a baby. I was hopeful that I do believe in miracles. I believe in the divine. I thought maybe, but look, I wasn't stopping my life waiting for something to happen. So when I miss my period this one time, and I'm somebody who's acutely aware of their period because they're so painful that I literally, I'm hyper aware of them. Mm. I, I, I dread having my period. I dread, like, I, I'm just like, oh my God, somebody make it stop. So when I missed my period, I thought, oh. <sighs> and I'm a heavy bleeder. I believe like for seven days. Sometimes I can go two weeks. Okay. Yeah. It, it's a whole thing. And I'm thinking, okay, I've missed it. I'm happy. <laughs> that's nice don't get, me wrong. <laughs> yeah, don't get me wrong i'm happy but i'm like hold on and i was married at the time so it was like okay you do, yeah, you're having sex what happens when you have sex <laughs> you miss your period it's no brainer really <laughs> huh i thought maybe i'm stressed you know, so i'm not saying you're stressed no. it affects your period i'm thinking of all these things it could be i remember i was in melbourne actually doing a speech for one girl they they raise money to send girls in syria to school so I'd gone to this event. My head is somewhere else going, am I pregnant? Am I not pregnant? It's not possible. I went back to this hotel. They had put me up. I bought some uh, some uh, pregnancy test. I was lying there in bed. I'm like, oh my God, I should take it. I'm like, don't take it. Oh my God, I should take it. You know when you want something, but you have to try to stop yourself from wanting it because you can't have it it's a roller coaster for people out there who have probably been diagnosed with a form of in- infertility or starting to, to have a baby. You would know what I'm talking about, that, that 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 fear of wanting something so bad, but you have convinced yourself you don't want it because you're just so scared and it's so stressful. So I'm like, should I take the pregnancy test? No, don't take the pregnancy. My heart can't take it if it's not. I cannot do this. <laughs> I'm happy to announce to people that I may have cleared out the whole pharmacy of all their <laughs> pregnancy tests because I was not going to accept the first that were all positive, I said it's it's a lie, the devil is a lie, it's a lie, it's a false positive, it's not true, I rejected the premise of those tests, then I went to the GP to do a blood test, he came back positive, I said do another one, because that's a lie, (laughs) that is not true, my GP I think at some point was sick sick of me, I'm like it's wrong, it's not possible, then I had to accept it, that I was pregnant, then comes all the feelings of that. Wow. Of that you're pregnant, you didn't think you'd be pregnant. Now you are. Then the, the fear of what if I lose it? You know, that first trimester. It's like, what if I lose it though? But what made it even more scary is that I couldn't celebrate it. Honestly, sometimes I think I need to have another baby just so I can do it again without the fear and the stress. Because It was very stressful because I'm like, I'm pregnant. I couldn't be excited because I was so scared. So I spent more time being scared than actually I was being excited that I was pregnant. When I went for my first antenatal appointment, and if you remember, they ask you, they do all this to family check, everything, history. At some point in the test, I said to the lady, she had finished, I said, um, are you going to ask me about FGM? So why will I ask you about FGM? So this is something I've been doing, uh, advocacy focus around. I think every antenatal appointment, F- women should be asked about FGM because it will have an impact. She said, no, no, why would I ask him? Like, I've had FGM, it will have an impact. She said, oh, okay, um, yes, FGM. That will make you high risk. All right. Let's, she took note of it. She panicked, which made me panic. Then she told me my pregnancy will be high risk as a result mm-hmm. of the MGM. So mm-hmm. I'm like, nice. Mega good baby. High risk baby. High chance of losing said baby. Thank you. That's nice. So she said, well, I need you to, the next appointment you come, I will need you to see the doctor so, you know, they can look into this because this is going to have an impact. I'm like, okay. I came back with that appointment. The doctor's asking me if I'm okay. I'm like, yeah, maybe bit of nausea, can't stand the smell of um, onion and raw meat for some strange reason, but I'm okay. I'm like, um, I was told you would do an examination today though, to, to determine the type of FGM I had to, to write that and the impact it will have in my delivery plan. She said, no, I don't need to do that. I'm like, actually, yeah, I was told you're going to do that. You have to verify. No, I don't have to. you be fine. I went, no, I won't be fine. No, when we get to the operating room, we will work it out. Why will we wait until I'm in the operating room for you to work this out? I thought, okay, calm down, breathe. Don't smack her. Don't do and Don't hurt her. Don't do that. <laughs> you cannot be in prison and be pregnant. You cannot. Like, there are people who are, but I, I, I just can't. I, I, I can't. Like, no. I
1: don't have so, time. So
0: <laughs> I don't have time for this. And I said to her, no, no, let's try this again. I'm really small down there, so I need you to check and verify. She's like, no, a lot of women are small. When we get to the operating room, we saw this out. I'm thinking, this woman's going to kill me and my baby. You must imagine if I had type three FGM, I would have been sewn up. If she waited until we get to an operating room and then then I'm made to push. This is how you kill people. This is why communities that have FGM have such high maternal mobility rate in the world. You die literally giving birth. This woman in a first world nation, first class hospital was telling me she would not give me an examination that would have taken less than five minutes to document the amount of scar tissue I had, which would impact what I had, vagina birth, mind you. Um, also be able to just take note of that and put in my history of that. She was refusing to do this on the ground. She will sort it out when I'm lying, actually in an emergency situation with baby coming. Oh, I was like this these people are gonna fuck me up, they're gonna kill me, and I'm oh I'm gonna kill somebody and I'll have to be in jail. Like I don't know. <laughs> so I went back to work. Lucky for me, I was working in Shine SA, which is a sexual health um organization. So we pregnancy, sexual health training, all of that. So I t- t- talked to one of the doctors there. I said, Look, this is what I had happened to me. She said, You need to get maybe a midwife group to support you instead. Doctors can be one case, which they can some. I love you all doctors out there right now, <laughs> saving us and looking after us. We love you. But some doctors can be, um, and they don't always listen and you might need a different kind of care. So I went to a midwife group. They listened to me. The midwife wanted to know if I would have the capacity, if my, you know, if were, I'll be able to have a vagina bed was what, what sort of examined and we work out I won't be able to have one anyway, so I'll have to have a cesarean and it won't be elective. It will be what and it will be what would be the best option for me. Blah blah blah. But every step of the way I had to advocate for myself because I wasn't listening to. I had people telling me what my body could do or could not do. They were not I wasn't. They not empower me. They were disempowering me, gaslighting me, telling me that I was wrong when I knew my body. I knew what I was going to. It was very stressful. But baby Sammy came on the 2nd of the 2nd, 2015, after I was in labor for two days in my house in pain, thinking, oh, this pain is like when I have my period. So for years, I told everybody, when they were asking me, how can I describe the pain I was going through, I said, I feel like it will be the same as a woman giving birth, like the contractions. They go, oh, that's not possible. When I was having said contraction, I turned around to them and I went, I told you, this is what my monthly pain was like. So that was the level of pain I was in. It's why I was home. For two days in pain because it was so, my threshold for pain was I thought it was fine. Mm. By the time I called the nurses and called this hotline, they're like, you're literally in labor. You need to get your husband to put the towels out so you can have this baby. I'm like, I've had FGM. I have a high-risk pregnancy. Mm. I cannot have a baby at home. I was planning for cesarean in two weeks. I cannot. They're like, well, your husband has. I'm like, no, 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 no let called the ambulance. The ambulance yeah. came and said, Why are we taking you to the hospital? You need to have the baby here. I've had FGM. What is FGM? I cannot educate you <laughs> right now. Take me to the hospital. me to the I was in labor for fucking two days in pain. But the pain was so normalized to me. I think I was in labor. Anyway, beautiful baby Sammy came into the world on the 2nd of the 2nd, 2015, mm-hmm. late at night. And he is so precious. He is me in a boy form he is so petty petty when I say petty I was saying to you before I don't know if we got this part of the interview he tells me he's five now everyone he doesn't have all day he has things to do hurry up mommy he bust into my room when he was I think it was three couple of years ago knocks at the opens the door goes mommy keep it down you're making too much noise <laughs> but this same baby oh that's what he told me at three Keep it down. You're making too much noise. Then walk right back out as if he pays bills in my house, which he doesn't. And off he went. But this same precious baby buys me flowers when he goes to the supermarket with his grandpa. I get roses and flowers even though it's not my birthday. It's not Mother's Day. It's nothing. Aww. He loves giving his mommy flowers. Mm. And he tells me I'm the best mommy for him. It's a strange sentence. He started saying two years ago, you are the best mommy for me. That's amazing. a very interesting sentence. So mm. mm. um, anyway,
1: that's incredible. And now you're doing it by yourself just to add, because not that you've got enough on your plate. We might just add that you're a single mom on the plate as well. <laughs> and then you're a single mom well, dating look as well.
0: <laughs> uh, so uh, look, I run my own business. I run a non-for-profit. I run a center. I sit on lots of boards. I'm an ambassador for everything under this sun. <laughs> <laughs> But probably the hardest job I have, but also the most fulfilling. It's been a mom. It's hard. Yeah. It is hard. That is. It is the hardest job I have, but it's also the most fulfilling. It's very fulfilling goal. And being a single mom is interesting. I was saying to you before. It's probably part of the, the part of my identity that doesn't come up the most because there's always talk about I'm talking about domestic violence, I'm talking about FGM, I'm talking about racism, I'm talking about intersectionality. I'm always talking about all these things and it's just, it's, it doesn't come up. So I think a lot of people are not know that I am a single mom that I, you know, I, that is a role I have and you do it, but you know, you create a, a family, you create a, a team, a community somehow, but it, but it's okay though. I won't change it. I'm a single mom by choice. I left my ex-husband, um, I chose to leave him. Yeah. <laughs> it was an accident. He had me being empowered, once him, making the choices about what kind of life I wanted for me and my son and how I wanted him to be safe, I wanted him to be healthy and what I wanted. So, um, I will not change that whatsoever. But it is interesting that, you know, I have this precious human that I have to um, I have to work life around. You know, before having him travel was just, you know, up and go. Now it's, where is he going to be? I've taken him. His first trip was all the way to Malta. I was invited to speak about FGM at the Commonwealth Heads of State meeting when he was probably six or eight months. Wow. So instead of going interstate or going down the road, he was a plane <laughs> straight to Malta. I traveled with a baby that was still being breastfed. If anybody remembers that, seven, eight, six, six months, Travel international. How many flights to go to Malta? I think we stopped at the uh, Saudi Arabia. Where were we? And then we had to go to another place. Don't do it. Don't no, only do it if you have to go somewhere important. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I had these bags. I had milk nappy. Men yeah. were like, do you need help with your bag, uh, Miss? Yes, please. Yes. <laughs> and then we came back. <laughs> And then, But I have just, you know, life changes and you adjust that. Okay, do I take him with me? I have taken him. Before he was even that, I would put him on my back. I will wrap him up African style. I will go and do a speech. He's on my back. I will hold him microphone here. As you he go up a bit, I would, he would sit on my lap as I, I do a talk. People now, I actually have people have gone to come for my talks and they would message me email me. How is that baby? He was at that oh. session we did and he was I'm like, oh, he's okay now. He's talking too much now. He's okay. Um, I've gone to speak this way because he's now a toddler. He's like, give me the microphone, mommy. And then he goes, goo, goo, gaga, boo, 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 He talks and then passes on the phone to- microphone to me. Then I talk. So I think I have to start charging the Sammy speaking <laughs> fee because it's like two for the price of one. I have just had to adjust. And I think it's just incorporating him into my life, if that makes sense, because nothing has actually changed in a way. I, I, my work has to, it's going to happen. It's very valuable. It is important to me. Um, and I want to continue to do, I'm a better mom, I I believe because of it. Mm -hmm. Um, it's just including him into that life and making sure that those workspaces, I feel that, you know, kids belong in them. We have always traditionally almost like excluded Mm -hmm. kids from those spaces. So I take him to the rallies. I take him to my work if it's safe and I make accommodations for him. People know he's coming. I tell them, I'm like, I'm coming to my baby so mm, mm. you know you know sometimes you know somebody's allocated to hold him so i can speak and then if he decides doesn't want to be held he comes to me i hold him kids belong yeah. in those spaces because we as working moms you know it's it, we're not separate i don't stop being a mom because i'm at work so you know it, it, i don't stop full stop yeah mom two hours a day so i take him i incorporate him into my life um and you know discussion of can we have it all I don't know if we can have it all at the same time, but what I do believe is that motherhood does not mean that I am not able to do the things I have wanted to do. I've just had to change how I do those things, whether it's uh, uh, flying out early in the morning, I drop him up to Kindi, I fly out, I come back, I pick him up. He doesn't even know I've left the moving state. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't even know. He thinks I just went to the office. I was in a whole different state, in a whole plane ride. that could have disappeared. God knows I didn't have come back. He doesn't know, you know, um, which is funny. I should actually say when Sammy was born, I probably, when I had him, I think I had one day rest. And then the following day I had signed up to do three interviews. I do. I was drugged up on medication because I had the cesarean, was in pain. I do not remember what I said.
1: Oh my God. It'll
0: only be months later when these interviews will come out, Whether it was a magazine and, and people, be, the links are sent to me and they're like, Oh, are you happy? I'm like, happy with what? When did I do this interview? Oh, oh when you had gosh. the baby at the hospital, <laughs> we spoke to you on the phone. I'm like, how did I sound? Fine. What do you mean I sound fine? I don't remember doing the interview. Well, you did the interview. Then I read them. Go. Oh, yeah, that sounds like me. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> That was me. And this is not trying to say I'm a superwoman. Not at all. Women do remarkable things. Like I've said, the woman giving birth in war zones, for Christ's sake. The woman giving birth in prisons, for goodness sake. It's just what I'm saying is, I am me. I'm Khadija. I am still, I'm a mom, but I am still all these other things I've always been. And even as I've brought a life to the world, I could not stop myself. From still doing what I needed to be done while lying in that hospital and not remembering. I feel like that
1: is just a testament to the person you are. That is an amazing story. Now, Khadija, we. I actually
0: don't remember it. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Lucky you didn't say
0: anything too scary. Um, It just tells you I know what, I know this stuff in and out. You you know. In the middle of the night, I am ready to go.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Now, Khadija, I have loved every single moment of speaking to you, but with every yes, I love to finish in the same way. And I ask, yeah. what would the Khadija in front of me now virtually tell the Khadija in her darkest, worst moments that were really overwhelming and frightening and scary? What would you, with all this knowledge, knowledge tell her now?
0: Oh, I think of that Khadija a lot, mind you. I talk to her because I'm, I'm a believer in talking to our little selves, the little people inside us, nurturing them and reparenting them, especially if you've gone through trauma. What I always say to her, like Khadija, is that I, first of all, acknowledge that she exists, the little person. She's in there, in me. She's the one who gets, comes out and wants to be naughty every now and then. I'm like, okay, you play a little bit. What I say to her is that you, you are worthy. You are so worthy, even in your darkness, even in your Bad times, you are so worthy of everything. You are worthy, no matter what the world has said. You are worthy and powerful beyond measure. Because little KDJ is powerful. She's powerful. That's why the world, from the get-go, tried to knock her down, take her out of the game quickly. It's like, let's take her out. You are that Powerful. So when the world comes at you, even when those who you're meant to be safe with come at you, when they try to cut you down, you know you are worthy and powerful beyond measure. And you stand in that truth because that's what's going to get you on the other side to then welcome me, adult Khadija, because of that. You are worthy. And to our listeners, you are all worthy and powerful beyond measure. Everything you've been to, everything that's been thrown your way, and the fact that you're still alive today, you're still kicking, you're still here, is because you are worthy and powerful beyond measure. Don't ever let anyone take away your power and, t- and make you feel not worthy because you are, you are powerful and worthy and you deserve to be here and the world is a better place because of your presence. Even if you do nothing except exist, that is powerful.
1: Oh, what a way to finish. Mic drop. That was amazing. (laughs) Thank you so, so much. Thank you for giving me so much of your undivided time and sharing with me all your wisdom and everything you do. You are such an incredible, incredible woman. And I am so, as I said at the very start, so blessed to have had you on my podcast. And thank you for being you and being in this world. (laughs) Thank you so much.
0: Thank you for you. Thank you for your platform platform and thank you for having me and I look forward to the conversations this part.
1: Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your yeah, day doing you. who knows what.
0: <laughs> Netflix and chill. By myself. Okay. That's it.
1: Heaven. <laughs> bye.
0: Heaven on earth. <laughs> bye bye.
1: Thank you so much for listening to this chat. You can follow Khadija at Khadija underscore blah. As always, you can get in contact with me at Elizabeth O'Neill. If you can share this chat on your social media and tag me and Khadija, I'd be so grateful. Also, if you've got a sec to leave a review, hit five stars and subscribe. It'll help other people find lemonade who perhaps really need to hear this kind of content. Stay safe and I'll be back with you on Thursday for another midweek squeeze. Bye. Planning for your next trip?